We'll be at Ephesians chapter 4, uh, 7 through 16 today. Ephesians chapter 4, 7 through 16. The title of the sermon is Equipping the Saints. Equipping the Saints. I came, I saw, I conquered. I came, I saw, I conquered. Forty-seven years before Christ, Julius Caesar, one of the greatest military minds and, and generals of all time, mouthed these famous words. And what happened was this. The Roman Empire was in full control. However, there there was civil war at times. In, in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, the kingdom of Pontus in northern Turkey, led by King Pharnaces, defeated the Roman forces. And what happened was this. They began to mistreat the Roman soldiers and the Roman citizens that were captured. And word got back to Julius Caesar. And what did he do? He immediately led his legions to Cappadocia, Turkey. And in five short days, Caesar and the legions would destroy this uprising. And Plutarch, a Roman historian, records that Julius Caesar wrote back to the Roman Senate back home in Rome and said, and had him write down, I came, I saw, and I conquered. This is all about providence. This is not about Julius Caesar. Although the history books would celebrate Caesar, Julius Caesar as the great leader and the great military expert that he was. But Psalm 2, as Brother Danny read, has a different viewpoint on this. Psalm 2 talks about as the nations rage to secure their kingdoms, what's happening in heaven? The heavenly throne room has a different commentary, a different view on what's taking place. The Bible says that the Lord scoffs and laughs at these nations as they rage to secure their nations. The Bible says that the heavenly throne room is using all of human history to move everything to prepare the way for his kingdom. Not Caesar's kingdom, but the kingdom of Christ. Providence was paving the road for the gospel to be expanded some hundred years later. As Rome's conquest secured and subdued the known world, what it did was it opened a wide door for effective ministry for a man named Paul. And Paul was able to journey through the Roman Empire, through Asia Minor, preaching the gospel from town to town. In Acts 19, Paul's third missionary journey, he got to a place called Ephesus. Ephesus is on the western coast of Asia Minor, western coast of Turkey. And Ephesus served as the capital of Asia Minor in that time. And what did Paul do? Paul would spend three years, three years pastoring this historic church, which was already established by the time he got there. And when he would leave, he would appoint his protege, Timothy, to pastor the church. And then five years later, as Paul's in a Roman prison, what, what did he do? He wrote a letter back to the Ephesian church. And he wrote to them about how to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So as we look at Ephesians 4, let's keep all that in mind. This is going to add some context here. The first three chapters of Ephesians 
is about our identity in Christ, who we are as saints. Because of Christ, we have every spiritual blessing. Because of Christ, we've been adopted as sons and daughters of, of God. Because of Christ, we have an inheritance to look forward to. That's the first three chapters. And then chapter four, there's a shift that takes place. Paul begins to speak about what the, how the church should function. And this, the topic that he talks about and preaches about in, in Ephesians 4 is about equipping the saints. So let's rise and, and let's read Ephesians 4, 7 through 16 together. Ephesians chapter 4, 7 through 16. God's word says this, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray your spirit will guide this time of preaching. I pray your spirit will allow me to preach your word faithfully. I pray your word, your spirit will allow us to understand and know your son more through your word. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. Right here, verse 7 to 10 is talking about the great value of spiritual gifts. Although we are united in Christ, meaning we have the same, we're part of the same body of Christ, we have the same spirit dwelling in us, we have the same hope in us, we serve the same Lord, we have the same faith, we're baptized into the body of Christ, we, ha- we worship the same Father and God. Every saint has been graced differently to serve. Verse 7 says this, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. We've been graced differently. We've been graced with unique opportunities to serve the church. Even Sandra's testimony is a very unique opportunity to serve our church in a very unique way. We've all been graced with a unique combination of gifts. We preached in the past, but we're, in effect, spiritual fingerprints. We're all different. Not one of us are different. Not one of us have the same level of gifts. Not many, all of us have the same combination of gifts. We have a blending of different gifts. We're all spiritual fingerprints meant to serve the church uniquely. And in verse 7, it says it's a gift. It means these gifts were freely given. And how did... God make this possible. Going back to the imagery of Julius Caesar, what happened after this victory? 
I came, I saw, I conquered. What happened is this word got back to the Roman Senate. The Roman Senate said, let's offer up the triumph for Julius Caesar and his men. The triumph is a parade to honor major military conquests. The triumph. The crowds would gather, men and women, young and old, rich and poor. Everyone would come to Rome and line the streets of Rome. A massive parade. The music and the pomp and the hype would be filling the air as decorations were filled throughout the streets and throughout the, uh, throughout the city of Rome. And you could smell victory as the incense burned in the censers and lit up the whole city and flower petals were covering the streets. And what would, they, what would happen as those war heroes would march in and trample on these flower petals, riding their horses, riding their chariots? The crowds would start to cheer. The crowds were fueled by this pride of, yes, our war heroes were back, and yes, we've reestablished our dominance in the world. We are Rome. This is what fueled this event. And banners and signs were hung up, according to history, that with signs that said, I came, I saw, I conquered. Caesar and his men will parade down Rome. And they'll be accompanied with some people. Caesar and his men would bring along POWs that they've captured. The defeated king, royalty, senators, wealthy men and women. All walks of life that they could parade through Rome and say, see, this is another group of people we've subdued. But also another group of people will be there with them. The Roman soldiers and the citizens that were captured. They were brought safely back home and says, look, we've liberated one of people of our own. People will celebrate. They cheer, yes. But also what would accompany this parade is the spoils of victory. They would display the treasures from the conquest, the gold, the silver, the works of art, tools, Precious fabrics would be paraded down the streets and distributed to the people. Now, why do I tell you all this? Because verse 8 of Ephesians 4 is exactly describing this. Not for Caesar, but for Christ. Verse 8 says, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he came, he gave gifts to men. This is uh, Paul cites Psalm 68, 18. To create this image into the minds of the Ephesians of what this is like. Jesus, our conquering hero, comes and is parading through, parading through with his conquest. He led captive a host of captives, says. What, who are these people? This is the, these are the forces of darkness. Christ dominates Satan. Christ dominates the demons. These are the forces of hell. Also the redeemed are returned back to the Father. Jesus says, I rescue these and return you back to the heavenly Father. And then the spoils of victory. Through Jesus' conquest on the cross, Jesus not only redeemed his people out of 
tyranny of sin and death, but he also secured gifts, secured gifts. And he gave gifts to men. That's what the Bible says. He gave gifts to men. These are spiritual gifts he's given to his people. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says that through the Spirit we've been giving these gifts to minister to one another. And in Rome, whoever received these gifts knew they were very valuable, extremely valuable. These gifts, they would understand that these gifts came at a high price knowing that the victory came because Roman soldiers would leave their home. Roman soldiers would go under extreme circumstances and, and, and conditions. Roman soldiers, some would never come home because they would die on the battlefield in combat. These gifts are incredibly expensive and valuable. And as Pastor Kenny talked about, I highly encourage us to read Danny's blog that he wrote this past week talking about some of these hardships. These gifts that, that, these, that were received were treated with the greatest of care. So we understand this. The Bible says, by grace, by grace, by grace, by grace, free gift, we've been saved. By grace, we've been gifted. That's true. Every gift is free. Soul salvation is free. But Christ paid an incredible cost to secure these gifts. Therefore, every gift that we have, every single Christian, young and old, has been given gifts, and every single gift is extremely valuable, extremely valuable. So today, we're going to learn about equipping the saints. Today, we're going to learn about equipping the saints, and equipping is a part of discipleship. We need to be able to maximize our gifts to the glory of God, to make ourselves more effective for one another. And so today we're going to learn why equipping is a discipleship essential. And today, church, this discipleship is our theme. It's our theme week to week. But we're going to learn how equipping trains the church, unifies the church, secondly, and matures the church. Matures the church. So let's talk about this here, some here. Now the cost, what was the great cost that took place here? Verse 9 and 10 and 11 says, The great cost, the victory came through a high cost. The one who ascended is also the one who descended. This is talking about Christ. Christ is the one who paid the price. Not only did he conquer, he's the one who had to pay the price for all of this. How did he descend? This is talking about the great cost in verse 9 and 10. Christ gave up eternal glory by stepping off the throne. Christ set aside divine privileges by taking on human skin. Christ relinquished endless worship to come to earth to be mistreated by those who created those who he created. Christ interrupted perfect fellowship with the Father and the Spirit when he went to the cross and he took on God's wrath. Christ let go of life and he physically died and was buried. But the Bible also says he ascended. This is critical that we understand this. He ascended. He is not dead. He is alive. He is victorious. He defeated sin and death and rose to life. He departed the earth and returned back to heaven to his throne. 
guests, I want to ask you this question. Are you part of this triumph? Will Christ present you as someone who he has saved and redeemed from the tyranny of sin and death? Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, that he paid the price for you, that he descended for you? Have you trusted in Christ that he ascended, that he is alive and he's your Lord on the throne? Have you trusted in him in this way? If you have, these gifts are for you. If you haven't, I would encourage you to keep thinking about this. This is the greatest decision of your life. How does he train the church now? How does he train the church? Verse 11 talks about this. Equipping trains the church. Point number one, equipping trains the local church through these four specific gifts that God's given us. He's given us these four gifts. Some active and some not active anymore. Verse 11 says this, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. These are four specific gifts for equipping. I like how the ESV and the NIV NIV translate this a little bit more clear. He gave some as the apostles, because in the original language, there is the. He gave some as the prophets, and he gave some as the evangelists, and he gave some as the pastors and teachers. Let's start off with the the apostles. This is the office of apostle. These are the unique men, the 12 disciples plus one. This is plus one meaning Paul. The apostles were special messengers sent out. These apostles are foundational church leaders who were handpicked by Christ. Jesus Christ himself picked these apostles. Jesus Christ himself trained these apostles. They all experienced Jesus' resurrection. And how did they serve? Well, they established a foundational teachings and doctrines of the church. They received God's word and spoke it and had some of it written down. And they authenticated their office through miracles and signs. This office no longer exists. Those 12 plus 1 are now in, are in glory. The prophets, this is the office of prophets. This is in the early church. These are recognized leaders who spoke God's word, who expanded and applied the apostles' teachings to the local church. They had perhaps had a predictive element for some. And this office no longer is is in effect. Ephesians 2.20 says this, the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Meaning what we believe in is what they taught. And what they believe in, what they taught is in the scriptures now. So therefore now we have the Bible to turn to, to hear from the Lord. The third uh, group of people that, that that's talked about, the evangelists. This is the office of evangelists. These people are, this office is still active. These are like missionaries. Those who are sent out to evangelize the lost. These are people that you know within our church circles here who have a passion to speak about Christ. These are uniquely gifted people who explain the gospel in a clear way. These are people who are uniquely gifted with a great desire to share the gospel, the evangelists. And what is their role? Their role is to bring people into the local church. Julius Caesar, he was a great general, a great military man for numerous reasons. One, he was able to recruit and bring in the right people to serve in his army. He'd look at farmers. He'd look at strong men, men with perseverance, men who would be able to work together as a unit. 
And then they became battle-tested career warriors. That's why they're so dominant. They continued to be warriors as a career. But not only that, he trained these men. He trained the troops and got, and got them skilled in their weapon system. And just a little bit of a history here. The scutum, which is the body shield. This is the, he trained them how to use the shield to protect themselves from attack. But there's two offensive weapons that they, they trained them in. The pilum, which is the heavy javelin. It's a long pole with a, with, with a spear attached to, to go through armor. And what the soldiers would do, they would launch these spears, attack the enemy, subdue them, and then get close to attack them. And then the gladius, which is a short sword. And this is what they would use in close hand-to-hand combat. And these men were skilled at using the short sword. They knew how to use the sword. This was the go-to weapon to finish off their opponent. And we know what our Lord and Commander says. In Matthew 28, 20, in the Great Commission, he says to teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. All that I commanded you is his word. We've been equipped with God's word, the sword of the Spirit. And we need to be trained in how to use the word. And in this fourth office, the pastor and teacher, the pastor teacher, that's his role to train the church with the word of God. This is where we live as a church family. We minister the word of God. The pastor teacher, I believe this is one office, the pastor teacher. This is describing the dual role of this office. This is describing the elder of the church or the elders of the church. Pastor, in the sense, they care for the sheep. They lead the sheep. They provide oversight for the sheep. Teaching is what he does. He teaches God's word, the pastor teacher. Let me just read, let me just read one section here out of 1 Thessalonians 5. Verse 12, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you, having charge over you, pastor you in the Lord, and give you instruction. They teach you. Hebrews 13, 7 says this. Remember those who led you, pastored you, who spoke the word of God to you, taught you God's word. This is the role of the pastor teacher, to lead and to feed. And all four offices, although some of them aren't around anymore, revolve around the ministry of God's word. This is critical that we understand this. And so in verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, the saints are equipped, are trained through God's word. This is what we do as a church family. It is not an individual command. See how Paul is writing this to the entire church? This is what the local church has been tasked to do for those who are part of the local church, to train them up in the word of God. Equip them. Equipping the saints. We arm our people with God's word, the sword of the spirit. And we need to be skilled and understand how to use it. How do we understand it? How we interpret the scriptures? How we apply the scriptures? This is where the power is at when we understand what God's word says. Equipping, this word means to make perfect, to make qualified, adequate for the work of service. Next Lord's Day, we'll talk more about serving, but without God's word, we would not know how to serve our, and use our gifts that we've been given. Church family, you hear me now. 
I see a lot of gifts around. Perhaps you can recognize gifts in yourself and those around you. But if we don't know what the word says, we will not, not know how to use that sword. We actually might be hurting each other. We need to be trained like these soldiers, adequate, equipped to do a good work. And this is where we end our first point here. Equipping trains the local church. Trained in the Word of God, specifically in the Word of God. And once a local church is equipped with God's Word, what happens? Well, let's go to point number two. Equipping unifies the local church. Unifies the local church. Let's look at verse 13 here. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, it says, and the knowledge of the Son of God. Unity, oneness, harmony. This is what this word is talking about. Of the faith. This is what we believe, the body of truth of what we believe. Remember, church family, the more we're united in what we believe in, the more unified we'll be. This is what fellowship is all about. The more we can look at each other, I know you believe the same things I do, that unifies our hearts. Certainly we could enjoy a certain level of superficial fellowship where we're hanging out and, and, and just enjoying each other. Nothing wrong with that. But we're talking about a supernatural unity when we actually believe the same things. We look at each other and we go, yes, we believe in our Lord. And what do we believe in? Just back up a little bit in Ephesians 4, verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is a summary of what we believe. There it is. Paul talks about it here in Ephesians chapter 4. And we may have relationships with the world, people outside of the church. And we may be able to enjoy a certain level of fellowship, a certain type of fellowship with the world. But there's no unity with the world and the church. Let me explain. The church believes that there's one body. We believe in one universal church made up of only Christians where the world will say many things humanistic things, why we belong to one another, certain groups, why we belong to certain qualifications, certain ethnic labels, why we belong to one another. No unity there. The Bible says this, that the church has one spirit. This is a third member of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit lives in us. The world will say that there's many spirits. The Bible says that the church has one hope, hope of eternal life with God. The world will say we have many ways and many hopes to God. The Bible says that the church has one faith, meaning we have one source of truth, the body of truth found in the Bible. The Bible is our source of truth, our source of faith. Well, the world would say that there are many books, many sources of truth. No fellowship with the world in that way. The Bible says that we've been baptized, one baptism into Christ. The Bible says that the church has one God and Father. The world definitely says there are many gods. We have no fellowship with the world. On a superficial level, we do, but not at that level. You see, church family, the more we understand what the Word of God says about who He is, this is key now. We don't necessarily look at the Word to see, 
to learn, see myself in it. We, we look into the pages to see God. We see, we learn, we, we, we learn more about Christ as we look at the pages. And that's why it says, and the knowledge of the Son of God. The more we understand the Word of God, the more we know the Son of God, Jesus Christ Himself. There is a difference about between knowing someone and knowing of someone. Do we, do we agree to this? You know, you may know about somebody, but you may not know them at all. In other words, knowing Christ is different to knowing about Christ. Right? So this, this word knowledge here is epinosis. And this word of knowledge is talking about an experiential knowledge, an intimate knowledge, a relational knowledge. Do you know Christ this way? Let me explain more. Scholars have linked this word gnosis, the Greek word for knowledge or knowing, to the Hebrew word yada in the, in the Old Testament. Yada. Let me give you some examples of how the Old Testament uses this word yada. Genesis 4.1. Adam knew or yadad his wife Eve and she conceived. You understand what that's saying? Deuteronomy 34.10 says the Lord or Yahweh knew Yadad, Moses, face to face. This is a very intimate word here. Do we know the Son of God like this? As you're sitting there right now, can you say you know Christ this way? Deep, intimate relationship. You know him. And the ministry of the word, the ministry of the word on the Lord's day, whether from the pulpit, whether in equipping, our ace or Sunday schools, whether it's a personal Bible study, whether it's a life group where you go over the word of God. It's about getting to know Christ. And when you take this approach to studying the scriptures, this is about knowing somebody, it gets devotional real quick. This is not about how do I do this? How do I live my life? This is not about me. This is about Christ, the knowledge of Christ. And because whenever we open up the Bible and we rightly understand it, we just take, we just took a, Look into the mind of Christ. This is exactly what's on the mind, in, in, in the mind of Christ, whatever's written in the Bible. And the more we know Christ, the more unified we'll be. This is how this works. Equipping unifies the local church. Thirdly, let's finish up here on our third point here. Equipping matures the local church. Matures the local church. 13, verse 13b, second half of verse 13 says this. To a mature man, to the measure of the, of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Mature, perfect, complete, full grown. And what's the standard? Well, you just heard it. To the measure of the stature which belongs to Christ. Jesus Christ is the standard. Christ's likeness. Where do you think we get our discipleship definition? Committing to intentional relationships that, bi- that build What? Christ-likeness. This is what we're talking about. Paul's philosophy of ministry. Colossians 1.28 says, We preach Christ. We proclaim Him. Admonishing every man. Teaching every man. To present every man. What? 
complete in Christ. This was Paul's goal in life, to present every man, woman, and child complete in Christ. And this is what the goal of equipping is, to know the Son of God more so that we become more like him. That's what the goal is. And so what does spiritual maturity look like? Well, let's look at verse 14. Paul sometimes uses negative examples to teach us what he's saying. Verse 14, as a result, we are no longer to be children, spiritual babies, infants, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. This word, tossed here and there, the word picture is being whirled around. Whirled around. I remember going to Hawaii when I was younger, and I used to think I could bodyboard, and I came across a place called Sandy Beach. And so some of us who've been there <laughs> know what that could be like. It could be a little treacherous. The shore breaks are intense, and it would whirl me around, and I can't, I'm grateful I didn't hurt my neck. I'd get out of the water dizzy and confused. I, it'd take me a few minutes to get back to normal. And that's what spiritual children are like. Easily confused, easily turned around. They hear one thing. It's like, oh, I believe that. Oh, what about this? And then I start questioning my faith in these areas. What Everything you read on the internet, perhaps any books that you pull out of the Christian bookstore, some of these things may be making you confused. This is what we need to be careful of. Any new ideas, and this is carried away by every wind of doctrine. Wind come and go. New ideas come and go. My seminary professor says, if you have a new idea and no other scholar has thought about it, be careful. (laughs) You're not that brilliant, okay? Be careful. So if it's a new idea, be careful. Be careful. Check with other scholars. Check with other people. Because... These men, they use trickery and deceit. They may be holding a Bible and be telling you things. They may be saying they're Christians, but they're misleading you, perhaps. See, mishandling the word is also a way of misleading people. You could read a passage. You could, uh, you could uh, hold the passage and explain it in a way that it doesn't mean you never heard from God. You've been misled. The trickery of men. You think Satan's going to come at the front door and knock on the door and say, hey, let me fool you? No. Crafty, cunning, deceitful. These messages come from Christian professors at Christian colleges who cause you to question if the Bible is trustworthy. They're all out there. They come disguised. Cults are praying on college campuses, fooling people to come alongside them. And they look sincere. They look kind. They have a Bible. They call themselves Christians, but they're not Christians because they're deceitful. They're they're wolves in sheep's clothing. Let me give you a picture. Let's turn to Acts 20. This is what Paul was dealing with. This is when... At the end of three years, Paul is speaking to the elders of the, of the Ephesian church. In Acts 20, verse 27, let me just start reading here and go down this. Acts 20, uh, Acts 20, 27. For I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Paul equipped the saints at Ephesus. He's saying, I let you know everything you need to know. 
But be on the guard, he tells the elders, for yourselves, watch yourselves, and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To shepherd, there it is, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood, descended. There it is again, same theme, verse 29. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And where are these wolves coming from? And from among your own selves. Wolves in sheep's clothing. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. You hear that, church? From among yourselves. This happened at Ephesus, verse 31. Therefore, be on the alert. Remember that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you. I entrust you to God. And to what? And to the word of his grace. The word of God. We've been entrusted to God and to the word of God, to his word, which is able to build you up, edify, build up, and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. God's word. And what does maturity look like? Let's go back to Ephesians 4. That's what maturity doesn't look like. Children who are tossed back and forth, who are gullible. But verse 15, this is what maturity looks like. But speaking the truth in love, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Speaking the truth in love, not just speaking the word of God as a weapon to beat each other up or to control each other as a form of power, but in love. We speak the truth, to speak the word of God to one another. How do you know when we have a strong, mature discipleship culture going on? When the word of God isn't just flowing out of the pulpit or in the ace class, it's happening interpersonally amongst yourselves. We speak the truth in love because we care about each other. We're loyal to the truth. We're loyal to the cause. We're loyal to helping each other, being built up into spiritual maturity. That is when equipping becomes a part of our culture when we're speaking the truth to one another interpersonally. Because this is, that's just what we know. That's what we do. But we form some um, formal ministries out of equipping. Pastor Terry's doing a phenomenal job heading up this area of our church family with ACE, our adult church uh, Christian education. And in Sunday school, we have the gospel project rolling in, in for, with the children and the youth. And in these areas, this area of our church life, our formal area of equipping, what we're trying to do is minister God's word. Clearly, we want people to know God's word. Number two, we're trying to increase fellowship by uh, helping each other understand this is what we believe as a local church. And also to be able to interact with each other on a more intimate level. I'm part of the Genesis class. I get to talk to Keith after class and all the, the, my fellow students afterwards. It's a much more intimate setting. Fellowship. Commitment. We're able to learn. This is what we believe at Evergreen Church. This is what we teach at Evergreen Church. And then prayer. The four basic essentials. Our leaders pray for the class. This is important now. Now, one of the things that I, I want to talk to you about this church family, just to finish off right here, people have 
talk to me about their concerns about, and, and I love it because they're trying to help me as a, as a pastor, and I'm grateful for this. They, they're discipling me with their concerns, and one of the concerns is this. Aren't we just going to be filling up our minds with biblical truth and biblical data? Isn't this just going to be just a bunch of head knowledge? True. That's not what we want. Let me just read to you what happened in Revelation chapter 2. Verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. This is Jesus' critique on Ephesus. This is Jesus' critique on Ephesus. This is important. This is the only opinion that matters. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. Great. You know morality, Ephesus. You know what's moral, what's immoral. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. You have good spiritual discernment, Ephesus. You know what the truth of the word says. Great. Verse 3, and you have perseverance and have endured for my namesake and have not grown weary. You are, you're tough. You could persevere. This is great. This is the critique now. Verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Church family, as we grow in, in knowledge of the word, we, we understand this knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. The whole reason why we get together, the whole reason why we're going to be paraded down as treasures of Christ is because he loves us. Therefore, as Pastor Kenny read, we love him. Love for Christ is the reason why we're Christians. This is why we're here. And this is the reason why love, growing our love for Christ is the reason why we want to be equipped. Amen? Let's never leave our first love, church family. Let's remind each other of our first love of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for how precious your word is, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for descending, coming to earth, paying the price for our redemption, also paying the price to secure gifts to distribute to the church. Jesus, I pray, Lord, that we would never, ever, ever leave our first love. That's you, Lord Jesus. I pray, Lord, that Satan and his craftiness will not deceive us from leaving our first love. I pray, Lord, that even with the word of God as we approach your word, this will not be some kind of a mental exercise or some kind of a to-do list or some kind of a dead orthodoxy that we get to be a part of. That your spirit will lighten our hearts and minds to understand your word so that we see you in the words and that we will love you more. So Father, we thank you for your grace. Help us to love your son more through the ministry of your word. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.